Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the world's greatest artists, TLC, Gladys Knight, India Ari, Indigo Girls, and Hartsfield Atlanta Jackson Airport, the Falcons, and Clark Atlanta University. This is The Bright Side with Technicia, a daily show with real people with real experiences. And now, here's your host, Technicia. Good afternoon, everyone. Today is November 28th, 2015. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Bright Side with Technicia. And I am your host, Technicia. You know, we go through so many tragedies in our lives, and sometimes we think ours is much bigger or, I don't know, probably even extravagant than others. But sometimes when you really read a person's story, you'll find that your life is just totally normal. Like, it's not even that, that um, I can't even think of the word. It's not that big. It's not overexciting like you're trying to make it to be. Um, you know, we've been having a lot of tragedies going on in our world. We school shootings, the outcome of the pol- of the police shootings. Um, what else can I name? The terroristic attacks going on, Paris, the uh, um, Kenya. What else can I name? Ferguson, Trayvon Martin. The list goes on and on. People are so long. I need two or three more arms. Uh, going years back, Martin Luther King. John, um, J.F. Kennedy, you know, all these all these assassinations, I mean, the list is bigger. And, and to add on, I have a guest who has survived a massacre. And I don't know if anyone ever heard of it, but it's with the Jonestown massacre. And, and she will be so honored to just share her story. Um, I want you to keep your ears and your eyes open because this is something that, you know, we can all cope with, with everything that's going on, us losing a loved one, and and every day you should be thankful, not even just for Thanksgiving, but it's just the time to just really be thankful for what life you have. Take advantage of it. Be thankful for the deserving life that God has given you and that you have been blessed to wake up this morning to see another beautiful day. But here with me is Laura Johnston Cole. She's a Jonestown. She was also a participant of the Black Panthers. Um, and Laura survived this tragedy. She did. This happened. Um, this was some years ago, but she will be glad to tell you all about this, like I said. And if you feel like calling in with your questions, do so at 347-426-3751. The line will be open up for you as well as the chat line. Laura, how are you doing today? I'm so glad that you taking out the time to be on the show with us. Well, I really appreciate it because I think that information is the only way we're going to get 
past all these things going on around us today, I mean, even the Planned Parenthood shooting and everything, we have to educate people and explain that violence isn't the way to go. But we need to understand the issues. There are some massive issues that are floating by us every day, and we have to figure out how we can take charge of them. We do. Um, Laura, I guess I want to start off with the Jonestown. Um, Explain a little bit about it because it's a horrific event, even just going online, looking at the pictures. I mean, bring tears to your eyes. I know they did for me, and it Mm -hmm. really touched me, you know. Um, You know, I I started, I grew up in the 1960s in Washington, D.C., and my mother was always an activist. You know, she um, was raising three girls and and a divorced mother, so she had her hands full just in life in general, but she never stopped being an activist to make the world better for herself and for us. So growing up in the 60s, you know, in our house in Washington, we would house people from Selma and from other parts of the South who were coming up to protest the, you know, all the different issues that were going on in the South, the right to vote, the right to, you know, have equality, pay the same on buses, unionize, all these different things. So in a way, my mother was able to foster this feeling in me that I'm not going to let bullies run the world. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. until 1965, and then I went to college in Connecticut, and I was always, you know, active in integrating the local amusement parks and integrating our community, uh, demonstrating against the war in Vietnam. When I went to college, you know, I kept that up. I stayed in college three years as a philosopher. Of course, I was so I dropped out of school. I got involved with the Black Panthers for six or eight months. Um, I was a little too naive. My life hadn't really prepared me to figure out how I could be safe and follow that. It didn't work, but I got out of the Black Panther involvement. I went to Woodstock. I thought maybe, you know, being free love and free drugs in my era was going to work, but that didn't work for me either. Um, about that time, my sister, who lived in San Francisco, said that I should, I'd should i made enough bad mistakes over the last four or five years that I needed to move up with her so she could kind of take care of me. She was my older sister. And uh, she worked in the legal community at people who um, lived, worked with her and told her phones and said, you know, maybe that would be, I would be interested. So Jim Jones had a community church, People's Temple, about two hours north of San Francisco. So I started playing up and seeing Jim Jones, and I had to much decide I want to close the door on all the lousy mistakes I've been making, or, you know, did I want to walk away from that? So it took me several months to decide if I was and I finally did. So I moved into People's Temple in in August of 1970. And you know, I was very active. I lived in the communes. I drove the Greyhound buses around the country. I protested many different situations and atrocities that were going on then. Um, I was a political animal. And a lot of people think People's Temple was a religious group because Jim Jones was an ordained minister of the Disciples of Christ. 
But really it was an activist training camp, and it was for people who were fed up with racism that we saw all around us. And we wanted to have an effect, but we wanted to have a loud voice. Like we didn't want to just pick away at problems. It just seemed to work that with Jim Jones, he would lead us into, you know, in an articulate way, we would be talking, debating, discussing. That. So that's when I join people. Why? Uh, Go in a monologue. With that. Oh. So, do you want me to keep? No. Can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you now, Laura. I hear you. Okay, okay, good. Um, so I just didn't want to put everybody to sleep, but I can keep going. Do you, no, want me, do no. you have any questions? Or? I, I think this is, no, this shouldn't put anyone to sleep. This is history in the making. That's why I <laughs> categorized it as history. This is something yeah. that, you know, we didn't know of. No one has this. This this is technically not in a book. I didn't have this in history class, so no. This is very valuable information for us all to take heed to. Um, okay. But, Laura, what I want to ask, too, what actually got you involved with People's Temple? Um, you know, I was I was looking for a, a dynamic, diverse community. I grew up, you know, I'm white. I grew up in a white family. I was... Um, you know, and so I wanted to not be surrounded by people who looked like me, who thought like me, who acted like I did. I wanted to have, I wanted to have a full array of people around me all the time to make my life interesting. You only have one life, and I already knew myself. I didn't want to be bored by only knowing other people just like me. And so all my life, you know, I've worked on having with other ideas, other experiences in my life. So, the nation that was black and white in an era where that was not happening. And, you know, in the early 60s and late 60s, even though we had a voting rights bill, we had all these, all the legislation in Congress. In reality, on the streets, you didn't find mixed race anything. And so I was done with that. I didn't want racism. I would not accept it as part of my life. And when I went to see Jim Jones, he had brought, you know, several hundred people together of all different races who were all treated equally, who, you know, had relationships, who had were best friends or spouses. He lived it and talked it. The same thing. He put his words, you know, he was not a hypocrite. He didn't say one thing and do another. He had, he and his wife had been the first white couple to adopt a black child in the state of Indiana. And, you know, you can imagine how, how unpopular that was even today in Indiana. You know, we have severe issues with racism. So he said, forget that. I am doing it. And that was in the late 50s. So she was always somebody who would talk talk about progress and talk about getting rid of racism, and then he actually did it in his own life. 
So he was somebody who seemed to be, you know, pure and honest in terms of forcing the society to move ahead. He was always on the cutting edge of progress, you know, in that way. So I moved into People Simple because he had a, a community, you know, by the time I moved in, there were several hundred people living in rural Redwood Valley, California. And then within two years or so, we opened a church in San Francisco. And so at that point, you know, there were hundreds of people there. And we eventually had, over the next seven years, thousands of people who were pretty regular attenders. He had a lot of services Friday night in San Francisco and Saturday and Sunday in Los Angeles. Or we'd be in San Francisco for the whole weekend. So we had, you know, thousands of people who would come to different events at the temple. And we had a, a eating program for people who didn't eat properly. We set up communes for people. The average Social Security for people who were in People's Temple was $300. So he got people into communes and had soup kitchens and food. And so people were able to share resources to take care of each other. And, you know, we had that. We got people out of uh, jail. While I was there, I was part of the, I worked at the welfare department, and so on weekends I could help people write letters of appeal that had been turned down for things. We had attorneys who would give people free legal aid. We had nurses who would help people who had medical illnesses to go to the hospital or go to a doctor, know what to ask for or insist on certain treatment. So we had this entire program that took care of the needs of people in People's Simple. And it was a diverse group, um, but many people in, lived in Redwood Valley. We had, you know, another hundreds in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. So we traveled around. We had other people move in who didn't have resources. And we we just joined together to within the larger community to take care of our own and to be respectful and to protest when things were happening. So it was a very activist group. I was a Greyhound bus driver for about five of the years, and so we drove all around the country. Jim was also a healer, and he would have healing ministries around the country, and people would move in. So for about seven years, we were extremely active in, uh, you know, trying to make a difference in San Francisco and in our world. Um, In 1976... A young man who was part of the temple overdosed on drugs in San Francisco. And in that point, we said, you know, here we are. We're trying to protect the world's children, have a good life. And yet the reality is because there are drugs available on every street corner in San Francisco. I mean, you know, that's an overgeneralization. But there are so many drugs available. um, We couldn't protect our children from everything that was in the society. And we started talking about moving to Guyana. And so from that point on, you know, a lot of our effort was put in to have a a new community in Guyana. And in March of 1977, I moved to Guyana. So Guyana is a country, it was a socialist country on the border of Venezuela and uh, Dutch Guyana. And so it was in the northern part of of South America. Oh, and and Laura, we... When you got there, what actually made what actually made you what made People's Temple want to immigrate to Guyana? Well, you know, we picked it because 
not only had our young man um, overdosed on heroin and died, but we were looking for okay. a place that everybody would be welcome. And Guyana, right. it was a socialist government that, you know, invited us or was delighted to have us come and bring our resources. But it was also like half black, half East Indian, uh, with a smattering of Chinese and a smattering of white. It was English speaking. It was in the tropics. And so in many ways, it, you know, it would be like going to Hawaii before it was developed. It was the most beautiful, luscious country that was integrated and in, in living in harmony. And the government was really happy to have us there. And really, I think even at that time, Jim was looking for someplace that was remote because he you know, he had this enormous ego and he did not want to be supervised or monitored or um, reminded that, of anything going wrong in the community. And so I think early on he wanted to be remote so that when he was in charge, no one was going to question his leadership. So I think that early on he realized he wanted to be the one in charge. And okay. anyway, that was the biggest problem. Okay, he started letting that power overcome him. Um, how? Well, I guess, Laura, how did this all escalate from him getting his power, thinking, okay, he's getting his ego now? Yeah, you know, um, I always say the famous saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He's a right. perfect example of that. So he started out, you know, I think with the best of intentions, and he was certainly a loving father and everything. And then as he built his power and in with the other um, movers and shakers in San Francisco, he was able to, um, you know, his his ego was more and more enormous so that he was completely out of touch with the reality. You know, we're, we're all people. We're all, you know, standing next to each other. We're all the same. And so power is not something that, you know, you have forever. It's not something that you can't lose. I think uh, so he thought that he was immune to any kind of attack that would lessen his power. And he was not interested really in, um, I can't tell if you hear the scratching. I do. Should I take my phone off, um, off of the microphone and just use a telephone? Um, if that will help, because uh, it sounds good on my end. Oh, okay, that's fine. If it sounds good on your end, that's the one that counts. So, <laughs> okay, so I, I mean, I so I think it just be the internet radio. Hopefully, one day they'll be able to get all this together, so it don't be sound so <laughs> scratchy. But it sounded good right now, Laura. Okay, good. So let me know if it doesn't, and then we'll take whatever whatever step we need to take. Anyway, so okay. so Jim, you know, had his ego growing and growing, and then besides that, you know, he had accumulated or he had gathered this flock of secretaries and mistresses who really were totally uh, compromised by him. So he would have sex with people, bring them into his inner circle, and then no one would ever question what he did or what he said. And so he had not only this power from people at a distance, but in his own personal life, he had these people that he controlled almost like marionettes. And as he got more and more um, mentally ill, his ego was enormous. He was addicted to drugs in Jonestown. And as his ego got more and more outrageous, and as he looked around and saw these really smart, 
people that he collected as mistresses and secretaries, and they gave him total control over their lives, you know, he was just completely out of, you know, out of any bounds. There was no regulating anything he did. So the combination of the drugs and the paranoia from the drugs and the power he had and the control he had over his secretaries, and then, you know, they were in, as infected as he was. And so, you know, and, you know, he was a con man and he was so bright, he was really able to disguise all of his character disorders and his mental illness. And then he had people around him who would, just like the code of silence that we see, you know, in some police departments, we have, you know, no one talked about anything that went on with him in his personal life. And if he were too over, over, you know, had too many drugs in his system one day, then that day he wouldn't go out in the community. So they protected him so that as he was falling apart, really disintegrating, nobody would take him on. And his secretaries and nurses made sure that nobody saw him. And then when we got to Guyana, because there were several custody issues with children who were in Guyana, I think a total of nine custody issues, he was not able to go into Georgetown and do his power broking in Georgetown. The Guyanese had asked, Georgetown is the capital of Guyana. So the Guyanese had said, you know, until we get all these things settled, it'd be better if you weren't too public in our areas. So he was kind of on house arrest in this remote village of a thousand people way in the interior of Jonestown, which was 24 hours by boat from Georgetown. We were in a country that nobody even today can find on a map, and we were 24 hours away by boat from the capital. So we were extremely remote. And so Jim just kind of spun out of control with all the things going on with him. So as we were in Guyana, back in San Francisco, Different newspapers were beginning to say, you know, so who is Jim Jones? He took a thousand people to Guyana, wherever that is. And so who is he? How does he have this power? How does he have power to meet with Rosalind Carter for an hour when she comes to San Francisco? How does he have the power to meet up with the mayor and chief of police and all these different people and the governor? Who is he that has so much power? We've never elected him. We never had anything to do with him, and we don't know what really he's about. So the New West Magazine and the editor was Marshall Kilduff. They started in San Francisco saying, okay, we need to do some research on this guy. Why does he have so much power? Who is he? And so they let him know that they were going to start investigating who he was, what he was doing, and everything. And so Jim called in all the chits. He called in all the, you know, politicians he had supported over the years, all the people he had, you know, brought busloads of people to support them at their rallies and at their uh, speaking events. So he said, okay, get this guy to back down. Tell him not to, you know, talk about, not to investigate somebody who's doing all the good works that Jim Jones is doing in People's Temple. So they tried everything, including death threats to the editor and death threats to the investigator. They tried everything, and New West Magazine said, you know, we're not backing down. We're going to print it in six weeks or whatever they said. So Jim just moved everybody he could from San Francisco and from the Bay Area down to Guyana. So we had a huge influx of people. And in Guyana, you know, we... We were remote, so it took a while to get supplies, to get everything together. 
And for a while there in Jonestown, it was pretty primitive because we had more people coming than we were prepared for. So we were pretty much, you know, you do what you have to do. If you have 20 people come visit you at Thanksgiving, you have them sliding everywhere. And we did that. We did whatever it took to get people there and housed. And so at the end, there were a 1,000 people there. New West Magazine put out their magazine. And the local politicians started, you know, raving about what was going on. There was a group called Concerned Relatives that had family members in Guyana, and they wanted the government to go check that everything was safe and people were okay. There were people who left the temple from Guyana who went to Congress and went around saying, you know, things are not right. You need to get down there. You know, you need some oversight of these American citizens. And so all this was going on, but Jim didn't talk about that much in Jonestown. In Jonestown, you know, we took care of working really hard, building houses, planting food, everything. We were nowhere near self-sufficient in Jonestown. So one of my jobs when I lived in Georgetown was to fill the boat with food every week so that we'd have enough food in Jonestown. But in a way, there's no way to have um, an easy... um, You know, it wasn't an easy life because we weren't self-sufficient. We were too new. Even the citrus trees we plant took five to seven years to grow. But, Laura, what you because I'm listening to it, uh, was it ever considered like a cult? This sound, because to me, you know, when I'm thinking of this, and then when you describe it off with the sex and everything, I think about the other sex cults that they have, like the polygamy out here, was it ever, a, this was an actual cult? Oh, you know, it absolutely was a cult. But I feel like the word cult, you know, cult is just short for culture. And so it was a cult, but we haven't, the American citizens love cults. We're, so many people are part of cults. I mean, when you think about it, whether it's the Boy Scouts saying for such a long time they weren't going to have anybody gay in the Boy Scouts, or if it's, you know, even the Marines with Semper Fi. I mean, all these groups try and bring out, you know, a certain regulation and rule of behavior. And so, I mean, I think that the Americans, I think Americans, you know, cults thrive here. And a lot of them are religious. I've certainly been in touch with many, many, many people who have been part of cults and who get out. Um, When I was in Grand Rapids just last month in October, two women came up to me when I was presenting two different women in different settings and said they had just gotten out of religious cults and they were just trying to make it day by day. So at every level of the society today, there are churches that tell people not to vote. There are churches that tell people who to vote for. There are churches that tell people, you know, how to behave and, you know, what to protest and everything. So we have, we, I think it's a big problem in the United States that people associate with groups and then allow the groups to legislate their morality. And people simple was absolutely, people simple was absolutely a cult, just like many of these others. So we can never turn off our critical thinking. And we can never no, give up our individual thoughts and decisions. There's not any group that should make you change the way you feel about, you know, anything. I mean, even the violence that's gone on, a lot of that is from people who have been sitting in church services and sitting in meetings, and they think that hate is the only way to answer. So, I mean, we have a big problem with that. And it's not just people's temple, and it's not just 
cults that kill people. We have people, we have groups that control way too much of our individual rights. Oh, yes, we sure do. Look at this ISIS going on. That's another way of mine. They're even coming through the Internet. That's how bad it is. See, years ago, it just, it was word of mouth. Now it's coming through the Internet and grabbing you and grabbing them young too now, Laura. But we're going to take a short commercial break, and we're going to get back with Laura, and we're going to talk about the the massacre. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's tragedy, but I really want to get into that. And also on her self-publishing book, um, So I want everyone to stay tuned and do not go anywhere just yet. (laughs) Thought it was over? Not yet. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Blog Talk Talk Radio, baby. Peekaboo. Peekaboo. Smile. Smile, buddy. Come on. Smile. Oh, honey. He's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. You know how boys are. Or maybe he's teething. Oh, poor baby. I think his gums hurt. Maybe he's just tired. Or maybe his tummy hurts. He didn't eat that much. Maybe he's not ticklish. You think maybe he's scared of the dog? Maybe he'll outgrow it. Maybe it's a phase. Maybe he just doesn't like smiling. Maybe he has autism. And we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs or see a doctor today for an autism screening. The sooner it's diagnosed, the better. And it can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. All right, we're back with... Laura Johnston Cole, she's a Jonestown survivor. And if you've been listening, this is part of South America. Um, well, they they actually had it grouped together and called it Jonestown, but they actually moved their people's temple to Guyana, which is part of South America. And I want Laura to really talk about what led up to this massacre, this, which they called murder suicide in history? Um, No, I moved to Guyana in March of 1977, which was about, it was exactly seven years since I first entered the church when I was in California. So I moved to Guyana for a year and I lived in Georgetown. And so my job was to fill the boat um, every single week and send food and all the supplies and the repair, you know, equipment and replacement parts and stuff into Jonestown. So we had a boat that would go up, drop things off in Jonestown, turn around and come back. And then my job was to fill it again. So, you know, it was a big job. It was called procuring. So I'd go to the abattoir and get sides of beef and and pork. And I'd do um, all the different shopping because Jonestown was an early farm. I mean, nothing was produced at first. We didn't even have sweet potatoes or anything that was growing that we could eat. So we had to bring in all the food. So after about a year, I moved to Jonestown. Oh, and Laura, not cutting you off, how far was Georgetown to Jonestown? So Jonestown was 24 hours by boat. You could also take a plane in, and that plane would take you about an hour. But, you know, in some countries, 
you know, you could plan on going on the plane, but if the pilot didn't feel like it or if it rained or if, you know, it was a Tuesday or if, you know, everything got in the way. So the most predictable way or the way you could rely on the best was to go in by boat. So we had our own boat that went up and down. And the trip was six was 12 hours on the ocean and 12 hours up the interior river. So it was an exquisite visit if you were going to be a tourist. But if you were in a hurry, you know, it took a long time. 24 hours by boat is a pretty long time. So I lived in Georgetown, and then after a year, I moved into Jonestown. And in Jonestown, I did a lot of jobs, but I was on the agricultural crew. So I had a crew, and we would go out first thing in the morning and pick greens and things for dinner. And then we would put carry the bags on our head back into Jonestown, and the seniors who worked in the kitchen would clean all the greens and clean all the food we'd bring in and prepare it for dinner. So um, towards the end there, we were feeding a 1,000 people a day. So while we were doing that, you know, I would say that probably 800, 800 or more of us had our eyes on what was going on in the community. We had beautiful babies born, you know, there were interracial couples, there was no racism, zero racism. We treated everybody with dignity. We had our own medical pre- uh, plan there so people could get medicines they needed. The community was invited to a free medical clinic in the Northwest District. So we had all those things going on. And I think the most of us who lived in Jonestown loved it and focused on what was going on and all the community we were developing. But in the background, here was Jim who was falling apart. He was more and more addicted to drugs. He was physically ill with some kind of a brain fungus or some kind of a problem that couldn't really be diagnosed while he was in Jonestown. And so he was addicted to the drugs. He was, um, you know, his ego was completely out of control. And he had always had a borderline personality disorder. By the time he was in Jonestown, it was a full-flung narcissistic personality disorder or worse. So all of that was going on kind of behind the scenes. And he, there were probably maybe even 40 people who knew that Jim was disintegrating, but everybody you know, still look to him for decisions. And so as he was dying, one of his main um, points of view always was that he wanted his name, the only name ever associated with Jonestown. He did not want to pass over his legacy. Like, you know, Father Divine, when he was in Philadelphia, when he was dying, he passed the mantle on to his wife, or they would pass the mantle on to other leaders. Jim would never share power. And even in Jonestown, some people who did know about him falling apart, they tried to come up with a triumvirate that would take over for him, and he would have nothing to do with it. He would not give up his power. So one of the flags I always tell people is if they're in a group and there's no transition plan, if something happens to the leader, then that's a huge red flag because no group should be so um, dependent on one leader if what the group is doing is something that's righteous. And so Jim would never share leadership or share positions. He always would um, put down people who seemed to be his competition. So at the end, he sucked more and more people into his delusion that he was the only one that could lead people. 
So at the end of October of 1978, Jim sent me back to Georgetown to do some more procuring and buying things in Georgetown to send out to the community. And so that's why I wasn't in Jonestown on November 18th of 1978. When you go by boat into Georgetown, you don't just turn around and come back. You're there for several weeks. And it just happened I was there on November 18th. So at that time, Congressman Ryan had been contacted by concerned relatives and by, you know, a number of people who knew about it. And Congressman Ryan from San Mateo said, well, you know, I'm going to go down and visit. So he let Jim know, and Jim said, absolutely not. And so Ryan persisted. He didn't give up. And so finally he went down to Guyana, and Jim, first of all, Jim booked all the airplanes that were flying into anywhere nearby so that Congressman Ryan couldn't get to Jonestown. I just found that out. But after three days, he realized that Congressman Ryan wasn't leaving until he got in there. So finally Jim okayed him coming in. And uh, we had a huge ceremony there. With We had the most uh, just awesome, talented people who were musicians and, you know, uh, thespians, wonderfully talented. And so we put on a whole show for Congressman Ryan. And some of the documentaries out show, you know, Ryan saying, I can tell that many of you are really loving living here, and I can tell how much, so much progress you've made. Amazing. And then he, uh, Ryan stepped off the podium in our pavilion where we held all our meetings, and people started passing notes to him and to his entourage saying, you know what, I want to get out of here. Jim won't let me leave. I need to leave with you. So he, so people told Ryan that they wanted to leave. So a total okay. of about 20 people had told Ryan they wanted to leave with him and not to believe Jim if Jim said they were sending them. You know, in the next couple of weeks, they said, don't okay. believe anything Jim says. We need to go with you. Okay. It, it, but Jim but Jim was in that power trip. He didn't want nobody else to get that glory. He didn't. Right. Wow. I mean, wow. I mean, were you, what, Laura, was there even times that you felt afraid to even be around Jim yourself? You know, I was never afraid in people's temple. Okay. And, I, you know, I think sometimes... Looking back, you know, there was never a time that anybody was killed in People's Temple. There was never a okay. time that somebody died with, you know, strange circumstances. And so, in a way, we were um, naive that that was an option. It never occurred to us. So, no matter what, you know, we did a practice saying that the military was going to come take over the village. We didn't talk about killing them or anything. But, you know, we had, like, drills and things. But... Because there had been no violence like that in People's Temple, nobody mm-hmm. ever took seriously that anything would ever happen or that Jim would ever take our lives. Right. And, and so, you know, I mean, there was never, we just couldn't believe it. It was just out of, of our thinking. It was totally denial because, you know, looking back, you can see signs. But really at the time, it did not seem like that was ever going to happen, that Jim would make that decision. Right. So, 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 so Laura, what led? How did this come about? Who enticed everyone to? Because you know, when you go on and you read about it, who enticed everyone to drink the poison that they um, put out in the newspaper? Was the poison in the drink? 
Yeah. Um. So you know. So what happened was that same day when Ryan was leaving, he left with the oh. twenty people or so on the truck. And after oh. he left, Jim called everybody into the pavilion, and he said, "You know, mm-hmm. um, as we're sitting here, people are killing Congressman Ryan. Our lives will right. never be the same because he had sent a truckload of people with guns to the airstrip to kill Ryan. So." When we were sitting and when people were sitting in the pavilion, Jim said, you know, things will never be the same again. We're killing a congressman. You and I have conspired to kill a congressman. So rather than taking the weight of it himself saying, I thought we had, no, he didn't do that. He made it, you know, communal guilt, said, we have killed a congressman. We can't go back. You can't go back to the United States. You've given me all your money. You gave me your house, you know, and I've sold it so that we have this community here. You've brought your children here. You've left your relatives without giving them, you know, even a goodbye. And so they won't want to have anything to do with you. You'll be felons when you go back because you conspired to kill a congressman. Your lives will never be the same. Children will be taken away from you and put in foster care because you'll be felons and you won't have any place to live or anything to live on. So he, you know, talked to these people who were absolutely exhausted anyway by preparations for Ryan's visit. He talked to these, he coerced them for two hours saying, you know what, there's no way to go back. And so at the end of that time, they were like stuck in the pavilion and then his secretaries and nurses went around and gave all the children poison. And so at that point, really, the adults, there was no way to survive that. There was no way to stand up at that point and say, no, I'm not going to do it. The children were already dead and dying. Oh, and so oh. here's, this, here's this Jim Jones who, you know, in the past had gotten their family members off of drugs or out of prison or into the hospital when they needed it. The same person who had protected them and made such a difference in their family all of a sudden he's saying, you know what, you have to die, there's no choice. And they had a history with Jim. You know, he had helped each of their families. It was not like a stranger riding in on a horse and say, okay, now you all drink poison. Here's this same guy who had protected them over the years. And, I mean, I think that's the relationship a lot of people don't get. It wasn't a stranger telling people, okay, it's time to die. It was the same, you know, uncle or benevolent leader who had been such right. good this works is, with them. Right, this is my friend. You're looking at this man, this is my friend. It's not a stranger, it's not an enemy. And most of the That's time not- this is what happens when when we put, to me, I, I I think Jim Jones, he was a great person, but things, you know, sometimes overtake us spiritually and mentally. But people trusted him, like you said. We're looking at this man like there's no fault whatsoever. But he That's kind right. of, right in there, he's now. And I'm so thankful that she wasn't there at that time. Where were you, Laura, when all this was happening? So I was living in Georgetown, so, you know, 24 hours by boat. But that same day, as people were dying in Georgetown, I mean, in Jonestown, Jim sent out a message to Georgetown and San Francisco and Redwood Valley and Los Angeles and said, okay, you know, everybody in Jonestown is dying. It's time for everybody in all the churches, in all people's temples, to commit revolutionary suicide, which was kind of a gimmick, you know, slogan that he tried to tell us we were doing. 
And so he sent that message as a coded message, and it got to Georgetown, and the woman who answered the radio call who got that message, she tried to talk to Jim's sons who were in town on the basketball team. She tried to talk them into having everybody in the house killing themselves, and they stopped it. Stephen Jones was 19. He said, no, we're not doing this. This is all over. We're not following that instruction. So Stephen stopped it all. And so he, and then he called San Francisco and Los Angeles and Redwood Valley over and over and over and said, disregard that message. We're not doing it. It's all over. We're not doing it. And he'd call him every half hour for the rest of the night until he was sure he got the message through that no one was going to follow that instruction. Right. Um, now, there's information that, you know, they mostly wouldn't put out that the media wouldn't actually tell people. Was Was Jim part of the CIA? You know, I think that, I don't know that there's any way to absolutely know. I know that he was carefully monitored. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that he was monitored. And with WikiLeaks, you know, there are some new um, correspondence has just been released this last year about communication between the Guyanese government and the U.S. government and different branches of the U.S. government. So there's a whole new area of study to figure out what was known and everything. But I have no question that we were carefully monitored by, you know, members of the Guyanese government who were affiliated with U.S. government. But, you know, unfortunately, I think that Jim, you know, really shot himself in the foot. I think his drug addiction was, you know, on him, and I think the mental illness was on him. And so even though I would love to blame somebody else, I really mm-hmm. think that Jim, you know, fell apart and that the power corrupted him and he surrounded himself with people who either wanted to share his power so they never argued with him or they were infected by his disease. As far as I know, he was the only one addicted to drugs, but they certainly provided the drugs. So um, even though there is some thought that there was involvement of either the CIA or other government agencies, you know, I'm one who believes really that Jim fell apart and the ego just completely made him a sucker for whoever came by. So I don't blame anybody but Jim and then the rest of us because, you know, we gave up our we gave up all our sensibilities and our critical thinking to follow him. We allowed him to make decisions for us and so we were all part of the problem. And there's not I don't think there's any Remember any uh, survivor who would say, yeah, well, you know, for whatever period of time, I was part of the problem because his ego was building up and I didn't take charge. I didn't take back my own, you know, my own mind and my own thinking. So, I mean, I, I think Jim, you know, created the situation, but too many of us gave up what we could have done to fix it. Why? And it looks like apparently, you know, it was other people that were involved. Um, we have his um, adopted son, and he was uh, a green beret. And then um, there was other people that you know, we who, mentioned. Who is who, that? Who is, um, what's his adopted Charles, son? Charles, son who? adopted son was Charles Beckman. And no. um, he was charged. He doesn't. Um, Jim's adopted son, he did not have an adopted son that was a Green Beret. His oldest adopted son was 19, so and he was in Guyana. So 
So I think that there is misinformation put out there. Like on the web, Watch. there's a lot of information that has no validity. Jim's oldest son at the time, his oldest two sons were Jimmy Jones and Stephen Jones, who lived in Guyana. He did not have any older sons. So he didn't okay. have sons who could have been in Green Beret. And see, that's why I'm glad you're on, Laura, because it is. That's why you don't believe everything off the internet. Always goes to the main source, and you are the main source. You are, you experienced it, you know, um, and that's why I'm glad, like I said, to have you on to clarify most of this. Because I don't, I don't take other all sources' mouths. You can't believe everything that you read online, and a lot of people that's do. Exactly they right. That, right, and that's why our world messed up now. Because as soon as they read something online, oh, it's true. No, that's right. That's right. That. When you when That's your professor right. tell you write a paper, what's your professor tell you? I need at least about 20, 30 sources because they want to make sure <laughs> that you got all your facts right before you turn in that paper. Um, so That's exactly Lord, right. You know, this, this massacre that went on, what what did it really take away from you? I know it had to take away the fact that you lost some good friends probably. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it took really away everything that I had going in my life. When I moved to Guyana, I never thought I would go back to the United States. You know, I had experienced enough racism. I had enough, you know, friendships with people that I was just horrified by things I saw on a daily basis. I never wanted to go back to the United States. And so my, that was like my dream. That was my dream community I felt like we were making huge progress and that we had a wonderful, thriving community that could be successful there. And even though we had to buy food and things and we weren't going to be self-sufficient, we had so many things going on and so many bright people who were so talented. So I loved every part of it. And so I knew everybody in Jonestown. We all sat, you know, and had meals together. We sat in services together. We worked in the schools together or the law office or in the field. I mean, we it's like we had a family of a 1,000 people, and we all knew people intimately. And it was just wonderful. And so I never saw anything going on with Jim Jones because it was so well hidden. Um, and also, you know, I was so happy I wasn't looking for it. There are people who were there, you know, my good friends who were there, and they said, oh, yeah, I heard Jim on the radio one day, and he sounded incoherent. You know, I never – I was just so delighted to be there that I really had turned off my critical thinking, and I was not observing what was going on. I was just – you know, delighted for myself that I was able to be part of that experiment. And so I missed a lot of the clues that I should have picked up on. But when I came back, you know, I I moved in with some other temple members, and for about a year I tried to do that. Uh, it didn't work because we were also damaged. And so we couldn't, you know, you couldn't have a good day. If you had a good day, like I went to work as soon as I came back because I had no money or anything. So I went to work, and I would be at work, and I might have a good day one day. And I'd come home, and I lived in a commune with 10 people. And we were all just devastated. And so the evenings would be horrible. Weekends would be worse because we had so much spare time. So uh, after about a year, I moved into a group called the Synanon um, residential drug treatment program. So I moved into another community and in 1980. And it was a community, they were um, getting people off of drugs and alcohol, but half the people were just communalists 
who love living in a responsible community and liked helping mm-hmm. people off of drugs, but also, you know, the regular business. So they took really good care of me and uh, just embraced me. They knew all about my background. They knew about communal living, and they just took me in. So for 10 years, I was pretty much surrounded by people who loved me and were taking care of me. So I hadn't used drugs at the time, but I was really not in control of my own life. I didn't hadn't really decided if I wanted to live or die. You know, I was really kind of trying to make a decision, what was my future going to look like? And so they took me in. So I met my husband. We've been married 33 years. My son was oh. born in 1989. He's a high school teacher. And so, you know, I started rebuilding my life. And that lasted about 10 years. And then Synanon was closed down in 1990. And I went back to school. I got my bachelor's degree in psychology and philosophy. I got my bilingual teaching credential. And then I started teaching in 1994. So I just retired last year from full-time teaching as a bilingual sixth-grade teacher. And then in um, 1994, I became a Quaker because I loved being surrounded by people with integrity and um, in 1998, I went back to the 20th anniversary with the other survivors. And okay. that made a huge difference in my healing. I know. Because I was, able to, I was able to. Right, that you could see other people who survived that you probably didn't even think about actually survived. I know that had to be a That's commemorating right. time for you. Oh. Um, yeah. It was really important. It just filled in that part of my heart that had been so broken to see people, you know, alive and well and with families and, you know, for the most part doing really well. It was just, it made all the difference in my life. It was like the biggest one step in healing over the last 37 years. I know, I know it did. Hey, you guys went through, you went through a bunch and we still going through it today. We, we have so much tragedy, like I said, going on mm-hmm. the ISIS, this Paris attacks. You know, it, it never will stop. It never will stop. These massacres, these school shootings, it's just getting outrageous. I tell you, we have to just stay prayed up because it just getting, it is. It's getting ridiculous. Uh, so I mean, I'm I'm most afraid of yeah. I'm most afraid of homegrown terrorists. Because, you know, we have in the world, we are a privileged nation. And so in some ways that would make us a target. And I understand that. But we have homegrown terrorists who, you know, around the block from where you live and from where I live, go into groups that call themselves religions or social groups or political groups. And they spew such hatred. So my worst fear is these homegrown vigilantes who think violence is the only way. Yes, yes, and I think it's just, it's just, as I say, it's great. It's just as great today as it was 25 years ago, and we just keep looking the other way because we feel, oh, we have the First Amendment and the freedom of religion, so we allow all these different cults to operate outside the law, and we ignore it every single time, and then when it goes down, we want to have our lip poked out or we want to raise a fuss. Don't raise a fuss now. Raise a fuss before it happens. That's right. That's Educate we, people now. That's what we need to step in. Yeah. Uh, Laura, at that time, do you, because it seemed like Jonestown was positive. It's just that mm-hmm. the leadership went wrong. Do you think, do you think that? 
I absolutely think that. And I think, you know, we were only there as much as the conversation about Jonestown. Really, we were only there about two or three years. And we built okay. a thousand, you know, a housing for a thousand people to eat three meals a day in the middle of the rainforest. Sometimes you see a house being built and it takes two years. We had a community of a thousand people in housing and fed with a medical clinic and so much more in two or three years. So it was an amazing thing that we could pull together. And so it had so much potential because the people who were there were so determined and dedicated. That's the word, That's the part that's so criminal. We have these people who could have made things work and be wonderful, and then we had this leader who had been given too much power by us and by, you know, everything he took, and so you just fell apart. But I loved Jonestown. I would never have left. Well, I'm I'm glad that you did get the experience, the happy experience before that happened, and you also helped. You also authored a book that came out in 2010, Jonestown Survivor and Insider's Look. So this will, this book is just a reflection on everything that happened, basically your experience and how you survived. That's right. That's right. And it's on audio and Kindle and, you know, print okay. on Amazon.com. Or if you want a signed copy, I have a website, www.jonestownsurvivor.com. And I love questions, so if you ever read anything that I've written and you have a question or you think that there's something you want to clarify, I love people to write to me to my website. I answer all correspondence. And one more update is 15 survivors are going to go back with me to Guyana in March. We're taking a documentary crew, and uh, we're going to go to Guyana and into Jonestown with this documentary crew so we can add it to our archives. And they're going to create a documentary that will come out in the next year or two. Oh, awesome. I wish I could go with you guys to go through <laughs> that, you know. Oh, mm-hmm. um, are you, Laura, but let me ask you this before we get off the air. Will you be ready to make that step back into Guyana? You know, I'm delighted because I have been trying to work on oral history and add things to our archives over the years. It's been 37 years, and so every year several of the survivors die. And so I am really excited about having a documentary crew go with us and interview us and add that to the People's Simple Archives. I just, you know, because there's so much trash that's put out, I just think it's going to be such a valuable source to have have things right. at your fingertips that you could understand better and read our stories. I've done none exactly. of the old history interviews. And I just, right. you know, I am really so anxious to have things archived with the honest, the things were bad enough. I never have to exaggerate how horrible things were on November 18th because it was so horrible that it couldn't have been any worse. And so I'm really careful not to exaggerate other things because the worst was already done. There's no need lying about it or building anything else up. So I don't want lies told about Jonestown. It was bad enough by itself, but I want the truth right. out. And so that's what I work on. Right, and that's and that's exactly what we're trying to do today. We're getting the truth out, and that documentary is going to be the icing on the cake because people need to know. Like I said, it's not in your history book, so this is the grant that I had you on, and it's probably – it's just probably so much more 
just when you do a documentary, it's just so much more because it's behind it. We can actually get the up close, get the feel for it and everything. And I I commend you to go back and to do that. I don't know if I could be that strong, but I think that's what makes you grow on the inside because you're facing what actually happened 37 years ago all over again. So um, I can't wait till it comes out. Please make sure you pick up her book. From Amazon, it's on Kindle. If you got an iPhone, you can get it through your app as well. Uh, once again, Laura, thank you so much. I, we, I really thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much. Thank you, you so much so for welcome. having me. You're welcome. Have and, a wonderful day. Guest, you too, and happy holidays to you too, Laura. <laughs> I got. Yeah. I will make sure to have you on again when that documentary um come out, so make sure we stay in touch. Oh, yes, let's do that. Yes, ma'am. And my listeners out there, the truth of the day for my friend Mary Ellen is this. Well, it's it's some days old, but it's still for equal in the eyes of God. Everyone receives the same amount of love, goodwill, tolerance, forgiveness, opportunities, happiness, spirituality, healing, etc. from God. The difference between people are the choices each person makes taking advantage of their gifts from God. Some people use their gifts wisely, while some people hoard their gifts, trying not to let go of them as if they run out. And others throw their gifts away with both hands. When you choose to see and accept your gifts, you are closer to God. These people, God will motivate and bless. For those who reject their gifts, a sadness and befall them as well as fears, and action and depression until they finally choose his life. Today, be thankful for the people who allow the earth's energy to gain greater awareness. Make sure you are one of them, everyone. Enjoy the day. And speaking on that, make sure you don't take nothing for granted because we don't know if tomorrow is promised to you. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's so true. Please take your life very seriously, people. I love you, and so does God, and you have a blessed one. Thanks for listening to The Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. Be sure to check out the archive section at www.brightsidewithtk.com. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.